You're listening to the Apple Insider Podcast. Welcome to episode 17 of our show where we discuss the latest news about Apple, iPhone, iPad, Mac, and more. We're recording on Thursday, May 21st, 2015. Today we'll be talking about new MacBook Pros and iMacs, Apple acquiring a GPS company, and, of course, the Apple Watch. We have with us this week Apple Insider Senior Editor Neil Hughes. Hi, how's it going? Hi, Neil. Welcome. And Shane Cole. What's up, cats and kittens? <laughs> and I'm your host, Victor Marks. So this week, we had on uh, on Tuesday the uh, the iMacs and MacBook Pro announcement. And what was really cool about this was was that, well, I thought it was cool, was that the rumor was that this was going to launch on Wednesday. And I think I chatted you, Neil, at the time and said, Apple just screwed everyone and said, the rumor says Wednesday, we're launching Tuesday. The hell with you all. <laughs> Yeah, it was a little bit of a surprise announcement. I guess a lot of people were thinking that they might hold it till WWDC, but uh, they decided to go a few weeks early. And it's not that big of a surprise because this is kind of the same thing they did last year. No, people were kind of expecting new Macs at WWDC, no announcement. So I think they want to keep uh, WWDC software focused. It's developers there in the audience, and uh, that's the that's the approach. So is there anything special that our audience ought to know about these new machines? You can't use them in target display mode, which is crap. <laughs> All right. So there's that. One of the complaints that I heard was someone was really annoyed that there was no USB-C port on it. Uh, I mean, then get a MacBook. I don't I don't know. I, like if I think if anything right now, USB-C is a hindrance more than a help. Yeah, it's, it's not it, like there's a lot of cables. It seems like people who are bitching about not having any USB-C are just are US. Yeah, USB-C. I don't know why I thought I said that wrong are just people who would normally be like, yeah, I absolutely desperately cannot live, you know, without a Firewire 800 SSD drive. You know, well, oh my God, why did you possibly take this away? It's exactly the same people. Well, I mean, the, the, the proposition here was that you buy a MacBook Pro, you're buying it for longevity, right? It's, it's a workhorse of a machine. It's got all the power in the world, you know, 16 gigs of RAM, one terabyte of SSD. You want it to last and so the last thing you want is for the new port to be there and you not have it. Well, then complain at Intel, who doesn't have any quad-core uh, Broadwell chips available. That's the reason that these 15-inch MacBooks aren't really that interesting. They're running old chips. Apple updated the Flash. It's got the faster Flash memory that was introduced in the newer MacBook 13-inch earlier in the MacBook Air. Um, and they have the Force Touch trackpad. But other than that, it's uh, the same MacBook. Did it get a better GPU? Um, did they upgrade the GPU chain? I think it was, uh, like a slightly newer model, wasn't it? The iMac switched GPUs, but I don't think yes. the, I don't think the MacBook Pro did, or maybe it's I'm pretty much the same like internals it. other than the flash. It's really, if they did upgrade the GPU, it's not a significant upgrade. Yeah. So the iMac got a lower cost model and they got the, the 5k retina model. Yeah, I mean, this is what they've done with the Retina models uh, before with the MacBook Pro, um, and you'll see it uh, going into the future with the MacBook. Uh, they introduce a Retina model at a much higher price and keep the non-Retina models available at a lower price so they can hit both market points. But uh, eventually they want to get the prices down and get into the hands of more consumers. So now they have under $2,000 for a 5K Retina iMac, and there's fewer uh, non-Retina options at the 27-inch level. Uh, they've killed some of those SKUs to uh, kind of streamline a little bit the the uh, product options. And the so we're sort of in a transitional state where everything goes retina. 
Yeah, I mean, eventually everything in their lives could be Retina, but you don't know how long it's. I mean, they're still selling the legacy 13 inch MacBook Pro with the disk drive on yeah. it. So I, I don't see the 27 inch um, non Retina going anywhere anytime soon as long as they can still hit those lower price points. The one they have now is uh, used to cost 2000 or 1900 somewhere thereabouts, and now it's uh, 1700 well, the, So The cool thing to me is that the old 1999 27 inch is gone, and for everybody who ordered one, but it hadn't shipped yet. They automatically gave them a 5K, uh, the new yeah. low-end 5K, which I thought was pretty cool. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. So what, what should our listeners take away from this? Awesome new machines. Should they go and get one? If you were on the fence about the 5K iMac at $2,000, it's probably uh, more palatable to people now. I mean, uh, as of a week ago, you would have had to spend $500 more than that to get that screen. So uh, it's, it's, a, it's a good deal. I think... Um, I think that, uh, yeah, I, I think that that's exciting. The Force Touch upgrade on the 15-inch, eh, less exciting just because it doesn't have newer chips. I think the real takeaway from this is the old models are now available for cheaper. So if you don't really care about Force Touch or the 5K display, you can now get the same thing you could have gotten three days ago for a couple hundred less dollars. And if you're fanatical about the 15-inch form factor, you're probably disappointed with this upgrade, I think. Yeah. Cool. Awesome. So the next story that I want to get to is a story about Apple and GPS. We've been talking in the past couple of episodes about how Apple's been been making motions towards their, their plans to overhaul their data services, and Maps is one of those. Shane, you did a story about Apple acquiring a precision GPS company. I did. Can you tell me a little more about that? Uh, they bought a company whose name hilariously escapes me at this exact second. Um, <laughs> but they bought a company who, it's only a handful of people, maybe 10 people. It's uh, your sort of standard from academia to government research kind of business. Uh, the name is Coherent no- Navigation. That's the one, Coherent Navigation. Um, I, had, I had to Google it, to be fair. It's yeah. not exactly a known company. I was, I was typing uh, AppleInsider.com as, <laughs> as I was stalling with those words. Um, but yeah, it's a typical, you know, uh, people came from Stanford and Cornell got together and said, we can make a lot of money if we do some government contracts. Um, so that's what they've been doing. They specialize well, publicly anyway, we don't know what their classified stuff is like, but publicly they specialize in really high precision location technologies. Uh, their biggest claim to fame was obviously iGPS, which everybody now thinks is going to be the next iPhone, which is a combination. Uh, it's a, a technique that combines signals from uh, the GPS constellation with timing data from the Iridium constellation. And Iridium is in low Earth orbit, GPS is in medium Earth orbit. So the idea is that by combining the two, you not only get better global coverage, but you can also get much more precise coverage. Uh, They think you can get up to about a centimeter uh, resolution, which is the same thing you can get from Europe's Galileo uh, constellation if you're willing to pay. But their centimeter resolution is only in Europe. Uh, the idea of iGPS is that you can get one centimeter resolution anywhere. Um, but that's probably never going to happen because it's military and the U.S. military doesn't like to give up their secrets that easily. So <laughs> in reality, uh, what's probably actually going to happen is there's going to be some other kind of augmented GPS that will be in the iPhone 8 or 7, depending what the next iPhone is called. It won't be in that one. It'll be in whatever the next one is. So it's going to be a ways off. It's going to improve signal and, and quality for consumers, right? It's going to improve accuracy for maps. 
and other navigation services. What does it does it mean anything for the industry? What do you mean? Well, so this is something that Apple benefits from. Does it mean it change the the landscape in any way between Apple and Android or Apple and anything else? Um, I mean, maybe if there's some kind of awesome new hardware that we you know haven't seen yet, but barring that, I don't. I don't think so. I think it's just another way to get, you know, better, better data, which they've really failed at until now. Yeah, it's important to remember. I think a lot of people don't realize because they just use GPS on their phone and it just kind of works and they're happy with it. Uh, they don't realize that GPS alone is kind of an old and flawed system. It's kind of slow and, and not as accurate as uh as a lot of smartphone manufacturers would like. And if you remember back many years ago when Apple had the location gate so-called controversy where it was storing Wi-Fi networks, the reason that the phone was doing that is because the iPhone can use that information with uh, remembered Wi-Fi networks and uh, cellular tower data and all that to get your location faster because GPS can take uh, you know a minute or two or sometimes even longer in certain areas to lock your location and get it really uh, pinpointed. So a lot of this stuff that they're doing is just in terms of speeding up and making GPS more accurate. If you've ever tried to use the compass feature on your iPhone and had to put it in a figure eight to get it calibrated, or like, for example, in New York, you go up from a subway and then it takes forever for the compass to, to lock on and tell you which direction you're walking in. You hit a block in the wrong direction using the maps to try to get somewhere. So all those little things add up and, and lead to a worse experience with maps. And I think that acquisitions like this are an opportunity for Apple to kind Kind of improve some of the flaws in the GPS system and and associated uh, mapping technology. Yeah, if you've um, if you haven't used maps in a while, um, by a while I mean a couple hours, and you pull out your maps and you notice that um, you try to find yourself, and first it finds you kind of sort of, and then in a little while you actually it finds you more closely. Uh, that's a symptom of the progression from. Um, maybe cell trilateration, which takes the three cell towers and triangulates mm-hmm. your location. Uh, Wi-Fi location, like Neil just said. Um, there's also a GPS, which is slightly different. It's assisted GPS. It's mandated, I think, by the FCC, actually, so that you can use E911 on cell phones. Um, a GPS actually uses a data call back to the mobile network to get your location. Um, but time to first fix for the GPS is usually 30 or 40 seconds. So you, as you see the, the progression of uh, getting closer and closer to where you really are, um, that's moving through the different location options available until GPS is actually ready to go. And GPS can be off by you know a few feet too, which is why sometimes if you're driving your car, it'll think that maybe you exited when you didn't, or yeah. maybe it'll think that you're still on the interstate when you exited. It can have that like 10 to 20 feet off kind of thing, or sometimes it just randomly jumps and, and goes a little haywire. Uh, and then it kind of figures out where it is. But interesting, uh, since you were talking about um, uh, cellular triangulation, I mentioned as well, Shane, uh, I figured I would note, actually back in the day, the first gen iPhone did not include GPS, obviously, but you could still get location information from the phone, especially if you were in a heavily trafficked area with a lot of cell towers because it would triangulate your location. And so I could get uh, transit information on the first iPhone uh, when I was in New York or something like that. Uh, even though it didn't have GPS, and it would get my location uh, very accurately, surprisingly. They were also using Skyhook Wi-Fi as the database for that at the time. Mm-hmm. Yep. Well, they still are, I think. Skyhook yeah. is still yeah. a supplier. Yep. And that's that's one of the things I've noticed, and I think this is a, a good takeaway for our listeners, is that practically right now, even though this acquisition hasn't had an impact in an iPhone yet, um, the thing you do today is keep your Wi-Fi on 
when you're out driving around, when you're out navigating, just having Wi-Fi on will make it more accurate. Yep. That's I like have, our- uh, I have reminder locate. I have location reminders set in uh, in iOS eight reminders, and if I have Wi-Fi off and I'm driving around, they are wildly, wildly inaccurate, popping up blocks or even a mile away from where the actual location is. Yeah. And if I turn Wi-Fi on, they are spot on. So now we've reached the watch portion of our program. Jane, you've got an Apple Watch, and Neil, you just got yours. Is that right? I just got it on Tuesday, indeed. Congratulations. Uh, uh, ah, yes, it's a very, very exciting time for me. You've joined the fold. <laughs> I, I, I don't have one yet. I'm, I'm the odd man out here. But your wife doesn't have one either. No, she ordered a week after uh, after they went on sale. It took her a little while to decide whether she wanted it, and then she finally caved. So it's just to get here late June. Mine... Mine was delayed because I made the mistake of ordering the Space Gray Sport, which uh, in the male-dominated pre-order world was apparently the most popular option. And uh, uh, those were backlogged heavily, but it finally got here on Tuesday. We'll just ignore the fact that I ordered it after both of you and got it before both of you. (laughs) He ordered it like two (laughs) days before it went on sale and got it like – No, I ordered it the day it went on sale. And then you got it like two weeks before me. So yeah, there you go. Brilliant. So one of the pieces of news that happened is that we now have watchOS 1.01. It is no longer a 1.0 product. Have you have you figured out how to update your watch? Was it hard? The updating no. process was pretty easy. Um, you just launched the app on the uh, – uh, I mean, I manually did it. I'm, I'm sure that there's an automated update if you just let it sit for a couple of days, just like iOS or whatever. But I just launched the Apple Watch app, went into the uh, general and then software update. Um, hit the button, it downloaded it to the phone, and then it wanted me to put my phone on the ch- or my watch on the charger, uh, and then it transferred over, and it just did a loading screen, just like the initial setup for the watch, and it probably all together took ten fifteen minutes. Yeah. Cool. What What did we gain in this re- in this release? Uh, uh, nobody small really bug knows. fixes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they said it would improve Siri and and this and that and the other, but honestly, I've had the watch since Tuesday. I've already had it crash on me at least four times, uh, and that's including 1.0.1. So that said, I mean, for a 1.0 quote-unquote product, um, it's still pretty solid. It seems like it's mostly the third-party apps that have been crashing and third-party glances that have been crashing the watch, but the fact that it's crashing is is not ideal. The update... um... Whether or not it actually addressed any usability problems, it did come with a pretty large load of security fixes. Um, a bunch of standard, from what I could see, I haven't really delved into it, but a bunch of standard anti-jailbreak stuff. Um, it had a patch for the freak attack, which was which came out what uh, March, February, March, um, and some others. So yeah, it was a pretty hefty security update. But in terms of user-facing stuff, you know, who knows? Right. Have you noticed that there was a, a new view for the uh, the day calendar? No. no, I did not notice that. I can't okay. say that I knew there was a day calendar option. Okay, so you can you can review in in sort of today. You can see the things happening in your day. They they updated and added a view for that. Is what it looked like on the internet, and uh, there were there were people that were excited about this. Oh, great new addition! That was it. Looked like the biggest piece of visible change in the UI that I could find. Yeah, just for my first couple days with it, you know, it's a very 1.0 product. Um, There are a lot of things that I like about it, but they just kind of need to add some more customization and personalization to, you know, reach that level of what everybody wants. Because I feel like everybody's going to want something different out of a watch, you know. It's a very personal uh, product. And that level of personalization, it it feels like they're a well amount of the way there, but not completely. Like, for example... 
uh, I really like the complications on the watch faces, but because there are so few watch faces, you're kind of limited as to the amount of data that you can put on the complications. So some watch faces have larger areas for complications. So you can get, like if you choose weather on one, you'll get the temperature and the current conditions. But on another watch face, none of the complications are large enough to show the current conditions. They only give you the temperature. Or if you choose a calendar entry, for example, uh, most of them are so small that they only show the time for your next calendar entry. They do not show uh, what the actual event is. Some watch faces do, but you know it would be nice if you could say, "Well, I'd like a bigger complication here. Shrink the watch face a little bit, something like that." Yeah. Mm-hmm. And for some reason, some of the watch faces can't be customized. Uh, the astronomy watch face comes to mind. You can't change yeah. anything on that. Have you what, what watch face are you guys using right now? Uh, uh, the one I'm using right now is called Chronograph. The okay. my daily driver watch face, if I have such a thing, is a customized version of the utility face. Um, but at this exact second, it's hilarious that Neil was just talking about all the complications because right now I'm using the simple face with nothing turned on but the hands, not even the wow. not even the hash marks around the outside, not even the minute markers yeah. or the, the hour markers. Okay, yeah. and when uh, I I bought a leather strap and I just told Neil earlier earlier that I decided the only watch face to use with a leather strap is the Mickey Mouse face. There you go. <laughs> Any other face just doesn't work. Will not pass. Not acceptable. Yeah, you know, I, I did an informal survey and I was just looking around and it occurred to me that the from this very informal, completely unscientific, totally bogus survey, that the utility face seems to be very popular. Because yeah. it allows that kind of customization and, and allows the uh, good use of the complications on it. Plus, it's not uh, <clears throat> super complex. So my thing about, I tried the chronograph face for a while. And my thing about it is at that point, the UI just becomes, I can't believe I'm talking about the UI of a watch. But at that point, <laughs> the UI just becomes too crowded, right? It becomes too complex. And the yeah. utility face strikes a really nice balance between displaying a lot of stuff but not feeling overly um, packed in. So one of the interesting things about the chronograph is uh, one of the areas where you would have a complication, you actually can't remove it. It's a permanent feature of it where it's a stopwatch. And my wife is particularly excited about that because she's a nurse and she has to do like timing on people like, you know, with certain things. So for her, it's just, it would be nice to have something that she can quickly access to do a timer. Um, you can add timer uh, complications to other watch faces as well if you want to add that. But uh, it's one of those things where it's a great start. I like that glanceable information. To me, that's one of the best features of a smartwatch, having tested every crappy smartwatch that has come out before the Apple Watch. This, to me, is one of the best features that Apple has. It just needs to go that extra mile. Another interesting feature of the chronograph face is that it's impossible to figure out how to get out of timer mode, stopwatch mode. Yeah, it is confusing, you're right. It took me like it took me at least a minute and a half to figure out how to exit stopwatch mode. So, so you you hit the stopwatch in the top right and then it starts counting immediately and then there's two buttons. There's a red one in the top right and a white one in the bottom right. The, the red one is stop start and the white one is lap. Sorry. Yeah, so you can hit the white one to do a lap and then you can hit the red one to stop start. But then if you stop it, then it brings up a green button. And then if you hit it again, it starts it again. It's, it's, very, confu- it's very confusing. So you Some start. That sounds like map, it maps to the same kind of interface that you get for the stopwatch in iOS on the, the phone. I've never used the stopwatch in iOS, so perhaps. Uh-huh. But 
it, but yeah, so it's very confusing. So you hit the same button in the top right to stop it, and then you hit the lap button to get out of it. Yeah. But if you hit the lap button before you stop it, then it just does a new lap and continues timing. So uh, the interface is a little confusing on that one. It is nice to have that feature there uh, permanently. And I think that's a good looking watch face as well. So your wife, when she's using it as a nurse, is she using it for, for counting pulse? Is she, you know, yeah, that kind of the, stuff, the you know, the heart? yeah. Or, or, you know, administering medicine, however they, I don't you know, she's, the, that's a classic. She's the expert on that stuff. I'm, I'm just the nerd here, but there, there used to be chronographs that were doctor's chronographs and they were, they, they were marked with pulsations around the dial. Kind of. I think somebody still makes them. I saw one recently. There are a few. And like another thing, like the utility uh, face is great. I really like it. And you can make it more or less complex with all the detail on it, but they don't let you remove the second hand. And I don't want the second hand on there, you know? And it's like, why do you let me remove all of the other details, but not the second hand, just little customization, things like that, that are obviously going to get better over time and going to gradually improve. But on the 1.0, it's just a little quirk. I think they don't let you because because Braun did not make a watch without a second hand. <laughs> I think they don't let you move the second hand because they're so proud that they managed to get that smooth sleep that they don't want it to go away. <laughs> I, so it actually is really impressive. To, to it it is. That. It is. Getting that kind of smooth sweep is beautiful. Uh, one of the cool things that they did this week was they, they changed the Apple homepage and they did it to highlight continuity and handoff between all of the devices, iOS, Mac, and watch. So you guys have these. Have you used continuity with them? Um, no, I'll be honest, I haven't. Nope. Only to test out, you know, handoff and see. The, the thing for me is that my, in my usage thus far, right, it, I, I may be completely abnormal in this, but in my usage of the watch thus far, the, my primary goal is to get the watch to stay in my pocket or to get my phone to stay in my pocket. I don't want to have to take my... The phone is huge. All right, let's be straight with this. The iPhone 6 is enormous. It doesn't fit well in pockets. Um, I, I know I'm going to get a lot of flack for that, but it doesn't. Just you know, be real with yourselves. Get over yourselves. It doesn't fit well in a pocket. No big phone <laughs> my, does. My Jinkos are awesome, man. They can fit <laughs> iPad Nano in it. But yeah, so my goal with the watch is to eliminate having to take my phone out of my pocket. And to that end, it has done fantastically well. I'm really happy with it. And that's the reason I'm not returning it, right? But I don't think that there is a compelling reason, aside from, you know, the occasional scenario in which you have groceries in your hands or something, I don't think there's a compelling reason to start anything on a watch that you have to finish on an iPhone. I think that you know going in, or maybe I guess a long email that you don't anticipate might be one, but you know going in what you're about to do. And I don't think there's any scenario which you're going to go try and do something on a watch that you didn't contemplate, you know, beforehand. You're never going to be surprised by the task at hand. And I think any situation in which you'd normally use handoff or continuity is, you know, you just start on an iPhone in the first place. But what about the reverse direction? Start on the phone and you need to pocket it for some reason to pick back up on the watch. Also a weird hypothetical that'll never happen? Well, I, I, if for directions, yeah, the problem yeah. is I, I don't use Apple Maps, so... Yeah. Because there's no transit and I live in New York City, so Apple Maps is worthless to me. But, uh, you know, maybe if they get transit in Apple Maps, it'll be awesome. Or if Google Maps adds Apple Watch support or something like I, that. Yeah. I will bet you that transit is coming. 
Now, if we're, I, I would hope yes. <laughs> if we're if we're expanding the definition of continuity, which I guess it's not really expanding; it's just using the full definition. But if we're using it to say things like carrying on an iMessage conversation, then yeah, I use continuity on the watch all the time. But I'm thinking when when I'm talking about the interplay between the two, I'm thinking more along the lines of handoff, right? Where you're taking a specific action to move something right. from the watch to the phone or the phone to the watch. Well, I think a big part of the watch too, it's not going to be these third-party apps. I know that everybody's saying that apps are going to make or break it, but I mean, honestly, Shane, do you find yourself going a lot of the time to the app carousel and picking an app from there and launching them? Um, No, other than the workout app. Yeah, I feel like it's mostly glances and watch faces. I feel like if you have an Apple Watch, you're going to spend 90% of your time there. And that's why the default setting on the watch is not to restart where you were when you pick up your wrist, but to take you back to the watch face, because that's where most of the time is going to be spent. They do have an option that you can change in the settings to pick up where you left off what you were last doing if you're in some app or something. And so for the minority of users that really want to use their wrist like a phone, then they can do that. But I think for most people, it's about notifications and glanceable information. Gruber had what I thought was a smart take on this um, he was talking about it in the context of the confusing operation of digital crown. But what he said was that you have to think of the, if you think of the watch as bifurcated into two different modes, right? Watch mode and app mode, then a lot of the, the design choices make sense, which I think is totally true. But yeah, I, also I, I think agree with that. That watch mode is going to be by far uh, the most important. I think app mode is just there because people expect it to be there in a smartwatch. Yes. Yes. I don't think this would have been hurt at all if the only third-party support was glances at launch. As long as the glances are actionable, you know, like you can reply to a, a WhatsApp message or whatever. Yep. I, I don't think it would have been hurt at all to not have an app home screen. You know? Yeah, I agree. I agree totally, yeah. The, the apps themselves, I don't see myself going there a lot. And in fact, one of the things that upsets me about the digital crown and the way it works is uh, when you're there and you scroll around the apps and then you want to go back to the watch face or the glances, yeah. you press the crown and then it take and then it centers you, which you would expect in iOS because it takes you back if you're on the you know a different home screen, it takes you back to the main home screen if you press it again. So I understand why they did it, but it, I feel like it would just be better to immediately jump back to the watch face when I press it and just leave the leave the app uh, carousel entirely. But uh, one of the things I do like about the um, digital crown is do you use the double tap of the home button or of the uh, crown a lot? Yeah, all the time. Yeah, because that's a quick. So obviously, that's one of the things that came intuitively to me because you double tap to go into a multitasking tray on an iPhone on your watch. It just automatically jumps you back to the last thing you were doing. And so whatever app you had open, it'll just jump you back to that. And I found that to be very convenient, especially in times like I went for a run the other day and I have my music on my watch. And then I was using the built-in Apple running app. And I was talking with Shane about this earlier, how it was kind of clunky and didn't work well for me because if I wanted to fidget with the music and turn up the volume or change the next song or whatever, I had to press the home or the digital crown. I keep saying home button because it works basically the same way, but I had to press the digital crown then go back to the main watch face, then swipe up, then swipe over to the glance for the music, then adjust the music, and then double tap the button to go back to the run display to show me, you know, while I was running, uh, what the, you know, my my pace or whatever. 
so little things like that, like they could fix that very easily in software. Just make it so, you know, certain apps can make it so you can just swipe up from the bottom to get me- quick music controls or something like that. Uh, if they add that kind of functionality into the, the running app, I think that it would become a lot easier. But the fact that I had to go through that many steps while I was running was not a great experience. Yeah. Do, do you want them to give you the option to change the behavior of the digital crown so that instead of going to the home, it goes to the, uh, the, the watch face? I feel like they could just, it's just one step that they would remove because you're, you're already at the home on the app carousel. If you scroll away from the center, which by default, the center is just the watch, uh, app, right? Cluster of apps, right? Yeah. And the center one is, is a clock. If you scroll away and then you press the digital crown, it takes you back to the center and then you press it a second time to get you back to the clock. I think it should just bypass that centering and just take you straight to the clock face. Right. I'm, I, I think back to the original iPad discussion of the mute switch where we had the location, location, excuse me, rotation lock or uh, mute. And we had this big debate out for being able to select that in the app. Yeah. In settings. Yeah. I, I did like the dedicated hardware rotation lock. I use that uh, somewhat frequently. So the fact that it was uh, ditched on the iPad Air 2. I understand why because you can do it in Control Center now and all that. But I did like having that there. It was I don't I understand to. why. I miss that button very much. My wife's iPad Air, no, iPad Air, iPad Mini 3 still has the dams, which why can't my iPad Air too? The Apple gods are capricious. Yes, they, they hate they hate us. They smile upon us not. They smite us. <laughs> for, once, for once in my life, I actually, there's something that they killed that I used, right? That never happens to me. I'm like that guy who oh. usually uses it exactly like they intend for you to use it. So I really don't care that much. Geez, I'm the guy that they're always taking stuff away from. I'm still mad about iMovie. What happened? What about oh, it? Oh, Dead silence. The, the check, the I, yeah, I, I was an iMovie 6 or iMovie HD devotee, and, and iMovie 8 and future versions ruined it for me. I'm sorry. Yes, I'm, I'm that guy. I'm I'm always constantly amazed by how great these apps now are now on my iPhone. Like I'll do like quick edits of videos oh, on yeah. my iPhone or like things that used to like I used to have to like break out a laptop and and Photoshop and and like do stuff to edit a photo and now I can do it so quickly on my phone and so much more convenient. You know, for all these people that say you need a computer to get real work done, well what kind of work are you doing? Because some of the stuff you can do on a phone or a tablet now is is incredible in terms of its convenience. You are so right. And I like iMovie on the phone. It's just the the, it's great. The yeah. iMovie on the Mac has is ruinous for me. Yeah, my, iMovie on the iPhone is awesome. My best i iMovie on iPhone experience was sitting in an Apple store, actually trying to convince the guy at the Genius Bar that my computer was screwed up. Mm-hmm. And uh, predictably, while he was standing there, it wasn't doing anything right. So I set my phone up to just record the screen for like fifteen or twenty minutes. And as we were sitting there. Uh, it happened. I pulled the video down, edited all the other crap out of it, left just the messed up part, emailed us directly to the store, like sitting from the store's Wi-Fi, and got my computer fixed right there. <laughs> Brilliant. For me, totally. I, I don't know how yeah. many dollars Apple spent on iMovie for iOS, but uh, for me, it was worth it that time. Brilliant. I love that. So it's- let's get back on topic. We were talking a little bit about uh, all these things. So Ming-Chi... Uh, from KGI t- released their their sales predictions, and we were talking about this before we started recording. That that Morgan Stanley was talking about them, and you're saying they're the same numbers. It's just that people read the headlines and leads differently. 
Well, I, I think that uh, I think Ming Chi Kuo's note that he put out this week was written from the perspective of uh, investors are expecting some huge number of watch sales, and it's not going to meet up to investor expectations. Which, by the way, investor expectations are all over the map for watch sales, and also they don't matter because Apple isn't going to announce watch sales, so who cares? But anyhow. Uh, you know, we can, uh, <laughs> we can speculate all we want about the, the sales figures, but what Ming Chi said was his predictions, and he's got pretty good sources in Apple's supply chain, um, in terms of, you know, build outs and stuff like that. He's in the past had pretty accurate numbers on, uh, iPhone quarterly stuff. So I put some faith in what he, he says. He said, what was it? 16 million by the end of September? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he said the end of uh, Apple's fiscal 2015, which is the end of September. So you're looking at the first uh, six months of less than six months, right? Of uh, of Apple Watch sales, 16 million. Is that a disappointment? In the way he phrased it, he made it sound like a disappointment. But when I hear those numbers, I, I think well, that's pretty dang good. Yeah, everyone should and, have disappointments like that, right? And then competing analyst, uh, uh, U.S. based. Um, uh, Katie Huberty with Morgan Stanley came out the same day with a note saying she expects Apple Watch sales of 36 million in the first year. And she thought that was great. Well, the first year goes beyond September and includes the holiday quarter where probably Apple's going to sell more watches than they did at any other quarter because the holidays, people tend to buy gifts. Apple sells more of everything else in the holiday quarter than they do uh, throughout, throughout the year. So uh, I wouldn't be surprised to see, you know, a huge number of sales in that quarter alone. So yeah, for the first year, it sounds to me like both analysts are pretty much on the same page in terms of their predictions, 16 million through September, 36 million through uh, the end of the first year, which would be April of uh, 2016, which would include uh, the holiday season in the US and the Lunar New Year in China. I think that's a pretty good uh, recipe for success right there. If they could sell 36 million watches of a product that didn't exist a year before in its first year, that's a pretty good success, I'd say. Yeah, I'd feel pretty good about that too. <laughs> but so, they're not going to announce the sales, so who cares? I mean, they already said they are not planning on announcing sales for the watch. We're not going to know what the sales figures are. So it might affect their bottom line in some way. They said that the margins are lower uh, and it's going to affect their margins going into the future quarters. But we can talk all we want about numbers, but we're never going to know them. And you know, the, the upshot is they make a watch, they sell a lot of them, and people seem to like them so far. Right. Yeah. They want to take the focus off the sales and how much of you can see they, they set that that right away. Like when the iPad came out, they're quick. They want to announce how many, you know, we had a million sold in the first weekend or whatever it was with the Apple Watch. They said, we're not going to announce the sales. And that Monday came after pre-orders started and then the Monday came after the launch and they said nothing about how many they shipped or how many they sold. You know, they might give an update at WWDC and give like a generic like, you know, we've shipped X number of watches to date, but they're not going to give them quarterly and they're not going to give regular updates because yeah. they don't want it to be scrutinized in that way. Well, I mean, the the problem, the biggest problem there is that the market is not rational, right? If the market was rational, they'd have no problem saying we sold 2 million watches. Right. But the market is not rational. And they're going to say, oh, you only sold 2 million watches, but you're Apple. You should sell 70 million watches. That's ridiculous. Sell, sell, sell. Right. So, I mean, yeah. the market has made their bed, you know, and they must lie in it. Yeah, the market is all growth. That's all they care about. And, you know, Apple, the largest company on the planet, is posting 
20 plus percent year over year growth every quarter still. And as soon as they stop growing that fast, even though they're still going to be the largest company on the planet, people are going to be upset and they're going to dump the stock because God forbid your company keeps making a ton of money if they're not growing. Even if it was half that number, any kind of double digit growth would be amazing for a company (laughs) of that whole size. A company that's on the verge of being worth a trillion dollar market cap, right? And they're posting 20% year over year growth, making huge amounts of profits. Gross margins are at 40%. I mean, they could, they could not grow at all and they'd still be raking in cash and just, you know, and that's not good enough for Wall Street. Wall Street needs growth. So it's, it's their own little world over there. And that's exactly why they're not going to announce watch sales. Just like Shane said, it's going to be deemed a failure, even if it's not. Yep. So something for our consumers, something for the listeners. So there are a ton of people out there that have got new watches. There are also a ton of companies out there that are beginning to make watch accessories. And one of them was Mophie who made a, a dock for charging the watch. And they sent you one, Neil. Tell me about it. Yeah, so I guess it goes on sale um, soon. It's not yet available. It's, a, it's up for pre-order, but they gave us a preview of it. Um, I'm a sucker for docks. I really like all of my gadgets having a home that they can kind of go to, uh, not just for charging purposes, but just for OCD purposes of I own stuff and I need a place to put it and feel like it's just right there. So um, as far as docks go, uh, it's pretty nice. It's uh, aluminum and leather. Um, the thing I like the most about it is it routes the cabling through it. So, um, you can, uh, it hides the, the USB wire, uh, behind it and through the base of it and then straightens it out and pushes it out the back. Um, and you basically, it uses the magnetic charger. So you have to use your own charger. Um, you plug in the, it, to the top of it and the watch just rests on there and the magnetic, uh, abilities of the chart of the charging cable are enough to hold it on the dock. And so your watch is on full display on the dock. It's a little pricey uh, considering it doesn't have the cable in it. You got to bring your own cable and it costs 60 bucks. Uh, That's a bit much for a lot of people, but you're also talking to a guy who bought an elevation dock for over a hundred bucks. And I had to bring my own cable for that too. So I am used to spending a little more on docks. So if you don't mind spending the $60 on it, I think you'd be pretty happy with this. But there are going to be other options out there too, and and uh, you know you want to find something that aesthetically is right for you. The mix of leather and aluminum is is okay. It's it's not an ugly dock. Um, it's it's okay looking, um, and it fits right in with the aesthetic of the watch. I think um, it looks nice enough, and I'm I'm generally pretty happy with it. I mean, it's it's hard to praise or or hate on a dock if it works. So it works. So if you had to to nail it down, recommend or not, fly or fail. I'd recommend it. Yeah, absolutely. If you're okay with the price at 60 bucks, I think, I think a lot of people are going to know right away when they look at it and hear the price, because other than that, it works exactly as advertised. But if 60 bucks is too much for you, you don't like the look of it, then it's not for you. It's a All piece right. of metal with a hole in it. Exactly. I mean, it, it, does, it does what it's leather. advertised to do. It, it lo- has leather. It, it, it looks good. It feels good. Sturdy construction. The cable is hidden. Um, so if you like a clean aesthetic on your docks, you'll be happy. But is it rich Corinthian leather? It is, it is not. They they did they called it premium leather or something oh. like that. So yeah, oh. only only the finest for the uh, points down on the rich Corinthian leather. Only the finest for the Mophie dock. So wow. yeah, I I would recommend this if you're on if you're in the market for an Apple Watch dock and you don't mind spending sixty bucks. By all means, have fun. Cool. So now I want to talk about analysts again, but this time we're talking about analysts and their expectations and the TV that would not die. Oh, geez. 
Oh, yeah. So the Wall Street Journal released a report saying that there had been such a project as an Apple television set. That is a, a whole LCD panel and everything. And so sad for everyone that project was canceled because Apple just couldn't make it up to their standards for what the, they thought it ought to be. And Gene Munster of Piper Jaffray has been going on for the better part of a decade almost saying that Apple's going to make a TV set. Apple's going to make a TV set on every call, every analyst call. He pops up and says, so, uh, so Steve, you're going to make a TV? No comment. <laughs> so, so Tim, you're going to make a TV? No. You know, and he's been doing this for so long. He had to make, he, it, I, you know, I, I have respect because he sent out an email apologizing, right? He, he acknowledged that, Yes, they'd been right that there were plans for such a thing, but that he was going to have to stop asking because they weren't going to do it. <laughs> if only Matt Margolis had sent out such an email. <laughs> but but Carl Icahn still thinks it's happening, right? He's convinced that the car is happening, and he's convinced there's going to be an Apple TV set. So I wanted to talk a little bit about why TV sucks and why it makes sense for someone to try and make a better TV set. And I also wanted to... to uh, to talk about historically times, then Apple has said something is not going to ever happen, and then they go and do it anyway. Well, well, before we before we talk about that, let's talk about a little bit more about the insanity of Wall Street because this is a good opportunity to talk <laughs> you about. Like that topic, don't well, you? Well, you know, I write all of pretty much all of our financial uh, focus stories for investors at Apple Insider. I, I do not own shares in Apple or any tech companies, so I write about this stuff just you know for readers' benefit. Um, and you know, it's just funny seeing the way that this works because. I mean, they basically make up a bunch of numbers about products that they think are going to come out, how much they think the margin is going to be, how that's going to affect the you know, price to earnings ratio in 2017. And they build models based on that and say that, I mean, it's such not, I mean, it's complete nonsense. It's just absolutely complete nonsense. And so you have these analysts, to be fair to Gene Munster, he didn't have models for the TV. He was just saying that they were probably going to make one. But I mean- before the watch was even announced, right? You had all these analysts saying, well, we think that they're going to sell a watch priced at $250 and it's going to have margins of 45% and they're going to sell 50 million in the first year. And they hadn't even announced a product yet. And these were built into like models and price targets and all that. And I mean, it's just, it's a, it's a loony bin on wall street. I mean, they just, they, they make up stuff to justify the numbers that they have. And it's just based on complete bull just complete and absolute bull. And they have to justify their take on this stuff and their numbers. So if you look at a guy like Maynard, uh, Maynard Um is one of my favorites. He's an analyst for Wells Fargo. And he is one of the few major firms that has a uh, neutral rating on Apple stock. And the stock keeps going up. And so he has to keep revising his price target up it, with a window that includes the current price, even though he thinks that the stock is going to go down. And so like every, it's like he's a cartoon character because every time that Apple comes out with a quarterly result that just blows away expectations, he has to find a negative spin on it. Not because there was anything negative about the quarter or the results, but because he has to justify his own opinion. That's all it is at that point. Like there is no, uh, oh, I was wrong. Time for me to change my mind on this. These Wall Street analysts just get in a position where it's like, well, I'm bullish on Apple stock or I'm bearish on Apple stock. And that becomes their entire driving point. And so when you see this on Carl Icahn, right, he puts out this note and he says, oh, well, I think Apple's going to release a car and they're going to release a TV and it's going to come out in the next three or four or five years or whatever. And then the Wall Street Journal that night comes out with a story and says, well, actually, they were working on a TV and it's dead. 
And then Carl Icahn gets asked about it the next day. Well, he just put out a note yesterday saying he's pretty sure they're going to put out a TV and he doesn't want to sound like an idiot. And God forbid he admit he's wrong. So he has to just say, oh, no, I still think they're going to make a TV. And it's like, you know, facts do not exist in this dojo for some reason. Like, why can't we all just accept the fact that sometimes you end up wrong? Everybody ends up wrong. That's okay. You can admit that you're wrong sometimes. But if you're on Wall Street, you have to justify your weird uh, stance on stuff, whether you're Carl Icahn or you're, you're Maynard Um or you're Gene Munster. And that's all these guys do. Ladies and gentlemen, Neil Hughes. <laughs> That was an excellent rant. I just muted my microphone and laid here and listened to you for a while. That was, <laughs> that was brilliant. Thank you. But, you know, a- Apple has, and I was going to say this a little bit later, but Apple has historically said they're not going to do something. It doesn't make any sense. And then they go and do it, right? And my, my big examples were the uh, the fifth generation iPod, where it was the first iPod that could play video for for years and especially once they started doing color screen iPods that it could eventually play photographs, they, yeah. uh, they'd said, no one wants to watch video on a screen the size of a postage stamp. No one wants to watch video in their hands. We're just not going to do it. And then they went and did it. Yeah. Well, they have to add a feature. I mean, but I mean, <laughs> I don't think that these two situations are broadly comparable, right? Okay. Well, they'd said the same thing about the iPad mini, right? They, they'd said that, that the, uh, 10 inch iPad, the original iPad size was the right screen ratio and the right size. And that any smaller than that would make the interface unusable for touch. It just didn't make sense as an iPad. And then they go ahead and show us the iPad mini. And I think even that is not a comparable uh, situation to what we're talking about with TV because TV is at this point, how, how old is TV now? It's uh, 70 years old television. It is a commodity. Yeah. Yeah, Or be fine. Even older, 90 years old. It's a commodity industry. Televisions are commoditized. When I can go buy a TV at Costco, a 55 inch LCD TV for a hundred bucks. All right. There's no, (laughs) there's no point in getting into this industry as a panel, a TV panel vendor. Okay. Mm -hmm. There's a reason, there's a reason that you can't buy a non smart TV because that's the only way to really differentiate yourself, right? Unless you're talking about the extreme high end. The only way to differentiate yourself is with software. And that's where Apple's going to go. The Apple TV will never be an actual television. I'm sorry. It will never happen. Never, ever, 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 ever will it happen. And I think we're seeing the problem we're seeing uh, right now. The Thunderbolt display hasn't been updated in, what, two years, three years? Yeah. Right? I mean, Mm -hmm. Apple clearly has no interest in selling panels of any kind unless they are bolted onto a laptop chassis. So... I'm just saying that the that the reason why you'd want one is that all of those TVs that you can buy at Costco or wherever, they all suck. Well, they, 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 no one cares because yeah. they, they don't even want to use the built-in smart features. They want to plug in their Xbox or their Apple TV or whatever, and they just want to get they just want to get away from that crap. I don't think well, I don't think features in these TVs are any worthwhile. Okay. Here's anyway. the question: Do you mean do you mean their software features features suck, or do you mean the panels themselves suck? No, the software yeah. features suck. The panels themselves are fine. I mean, no, I mean, I'm asking fine, but everything else around the panel, every part of it around the panel, sucks. Yeah, HDMI, so, HTCP sucks. Yeah, yeah. So, so imagine TV input sucks. So imagine a scenario in which you don't round down sucks. Universal remotes suck. Remotes with 55 buttons on them suck. Every part of the television experience sucks you try and go to someone else's house you pick up the remote that's on their coffee table and you can't do anything with that tvs yes. suck 
giant. So ass. imagine imagine yeah. a scenario in which the TV is just a. I mean, this is how it is in my house right now, right? My TV is a dumb display. Yes. I don't use any of the features on my tele. I don't even use the HDMI switcher feature on my TV, right? Even though it has multiple HDMI inputs. That's the future we're going toward. Apple hasn't. Yep. They don't really give a damn what you do with your actual television set, right? They just want to own the part that you actually interact with. Exactly. Right. And they want to be, they want to be HDMI input one. Vizio. No no one had heard of Vizio before 15 years ago. Why are they the biggest TV company on the planet now? Because they, 15 years ago, Yeah, because they sell the cheapest TVs and people just want a TV and it's like, well, it's 1080p and it looks great. And they go into a store and, you know, consumers, when they're in the stores, it's like, it's like these stores think that we're all like insects drawn to the brightest lights. They just crank up the contrast and the brightness. Oh, look at this bright TV. And you go, oh, great. And then you buy it, bring it home and you keep the TV for seven or eight years. You don't care about this crap. Mm-hmm. And the TV companies, they've been hurting because it's a, a commoditized high, uh, uh, competition, low margin business. And you can see all the trends every year at CES where they're all headed, you know, just the herd mentality of the TV business. So it started out with, started out with HD, right? It was, it was 720p, then it was 1080p. Then the next big thing was 120 hertz because 120 hertz could display native 24p uh, content. So like Blu-rays, if you want to watch movies the way that they're filmed at 24 frames per second without the three, two pull down, we're getting real nerdy here, but that's what they did was they go with 120 hertz and they go, well, people like their hertz. Let's do 240 hertz. And it was like, wait a minute, there's no 240 frames per second content that can even be played on these TVs. What is the point of this? Well, Auto Motion Plus, where it gives you that soap opera effect and it looks like crap. And they yeah. just added that stuff on. And then nobody was buying TVs and they go, well, let's go 3D. And then they put 3D on the TVs. Well, nobody bought that. Well, let's go, uh, uh, you know, with smart TVs and cameras. Well, nobody bought that. So now let's go 4K. Well, that's not really working. So let's go with 8K Ultra HD TVs and stuff. It's the same. Everybody's doing the same trends every year. They're trying to add bells and whistles to the TVs. And the average consumer just doesn't care. They have a panel. They watch House of Cards on it. And then that's it. I mean, they keep it for seven or eight years. As long as your TV doesn't die, why would you get a new one? Even Not even average consumers, right? Even people who care about this don't care about their televisions. Exactly. I, you know, I like uh, my favorite TVs are Samsung TVs because they have that like super thin bezel around the outside. They look good. But other than that, I don't want their camera in their TV. I don't want their smart apps. I don't want any of that crap because any box that I plug into the TV is going to work better. The Apple TV is going to work better than their smart apps. Uh, and Xbox One is going to work better than their smart apps. And at that point, you're just going to plug something into your TV. Yeah. And that's what I, that's the market Apple's going for. And that's you're going to see a new Apple TV at WWDC. And it's going to have apps and it's going to have voice input. And it's going to have all that stuff. And it's going to work a million times better than any TV you can buy on the market right now. Yeah. If there is ever an if Apple ever sells a television set like we've come to commonly think of as a television set, if you ever walk into an Apple store and buy the 55 inch Apple 4K television, I will do something unthinkable. I don't know what <laughs> it is yet. I haven't thought of it. If you're going to buy, if anyone's going to buy a $5,000 Apple television set, they're going to buy it with the expectation that they're going to get buried with it because no one's going to want to buy a $5,000 television set every three, four years. There's absolutely no way. If you spent that much money on a TV as an average consumer, even $2,000, even $1,500. Well, now you're in Sony territory. The the, the average consumer is not going to spend that much when you can go and get a $600 50-inch Vizio that looks great. Just and not I agree it. with you, but I, I, I still believe that there are problems 
with TV that suck. They're just not going to get fixed because none of the other manufacturers care to fix them. They get well, fixed my, if you do something with a smart box that controls everything. Yeah, that's that's my point is you're right. TV is terrible, but that's not going to matter. And Apple's point is that it shouldn't matter whether your TV is shitty or not, right? Because mm. you just plug our box in and you no longer have to worry about your TV being bad. Yeah, exactly. Well, the nice thing about Apple's box is that Apple's box does allow you to control different outputs for for audio. You know, you can do AirPlay speakers out of right. Apple's box. And if there were 5.1 or even 2.1 AirPlay that I could handle with, then actually, that's interesting. I need to do something about that. <laughs> I, I've been using this old uh, surround receiver, and that's why I'm cursed with too many damn remotes. And if if there were a good solution that handled decent audio that so I didn't have to use the tinny shitty speakers inside a TV, I would be halfway there. I just so, want to use the six or seven button Apple remote. I don't want to have to deal with any other remotes. I just want simplicity. Here's here's a question for you guys. There's a there's a saying in the uh, TV industry of the input one. What's the device plugged into input one? What do you guys have plugged into your input one on your TVs? I assume it's my Apple TV, but I don't actually know which one input well, one. The one is. that it defaults to when you turn it on, at least. Oh yeah, my, it's my Apple TV. Yeah, Apple TV. Apple TV as well. Mine actually, is actually. As I as I look over, my TV is actually on the uh, my Apple TV is asleep, so my TV is on the screensaver, and it's HDMI three. So, do you have uh, cable? Uh, no, I don't. Nope. And Victor, you don't have cable either. Nope. See, I still have cable because I watch a lot of live sports, and so my input one is actually an Xbox One, and the Xbox One is terrible. It's absolutely terrible but it allows pass through of my cable box. And so it gives me the best of both worlds, live TV and apps and some horrible voice control. So it's just like, it's the, the best option of a series of awful options. And that's the only reason it's my input one. I too watch a lot of live sports uh, when I can, obviously. And that has been, it used to really bother me that I couldn't watch uh, some sporting events that I wanted to see, but that has been largely solved for me now with sling TV. Because with Sling, I have ESPN, and I have TNT, and I have TBS. But there's no Apple Watch app, or uh, there's no Apple TV app. There is not an Apple TV app. uh, Wow, you just confused the hell out of me, you're right. (laughs) How are you getting Sling to your television when there's no Sling on Apple TV? Because I also have a Roku. Ah, okay, there we go. That's that's part of the problem, and hopefully a new Apple TV in the App Store, let's solve that. Which Sling very kindly uh, gave to me. I should note they would want me to note that. But uh, that yeah. is why I would like to have a cable pass-through option on a new Apple TV uh, that would play nice with current cable operators because you know that those guys are going to be real sticklers and they're not going to want to give apps to Apple to let uh, IPTV happen. So do what Microsoft did and just bypass it entirely. Uh, allow it to hijack the cable box and control it. It's still going to be kind of a crummy interface. You know, it's going to be a patchwork workaround, but it's going to make it your input one device. I would gladly sacrifice my Xbox One to use something with Siri and apps that works better than that because there's no natural language support on the Xbox One. If I tell it to turn on or turn off, I have to say a specific series of words to get it to work. I can't casually speak to it like I can Siri. So if Apple can get that figured out, it's going to be a killer product. It's going to be a huge hit. So until I got the Apple Watch, I would have said that that sounds amazing, if only because there will be finally be something in my house that can always hear me when I say, hey, Siri. But now that I have my Apple Watch, there always is something that can hear me when I say, hey, Siri. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. 
So I was watching this trailer for this movie that's coming out. And to be honest, I, I wasn't sure what I was seeing. It had Michael Fassbender in it and they were acting like they were quoting Steve Jobs. Have you guys seen this trailer? Yeah, it's a short teaser trailer. It gets your appetite wet, I guess, for this movie. So I was watching the people online on Twitter and all of the tweets that I saw were saying things like, he looks totally wrong as Steve Jobs, that Michael oh, Fassbender God. is not Steve Jobs. But but they said he sounded like Steve Jobs. And I listened to this trailer and I thought, what what substances have these people imbibed? Because none of this sounded remotely like who cares? <laughs> Jesse Eisenberg looks nothing like Mark Zuckerberg, and yet the okay. movie was entertaining. Who cares? Okay. Yeah, internet internet commenter uh, movie reviews are pretty much the worst thing ever. I mean, these people would have had you believe that you, Snakes on a Plane was going to be the biggest you movie ever. You could have stopped like, you at internet commenter. If you, <laughs> well, if you that's true to. as well. But all right, all right. I mean, Fassbender has a, uh accent that uh, is hard for him to get rid of so much so that it became a plot point in inglorious bastards for his character. So, uh, you know, it kind I kind of heard a little bit of his accent in the trailer. It wasn't really a surprise to me. His accent was all over the place as Magneto in the X-Men movies. So, um, I'm not really surprised by that, but who cares? He's a good actor. Let him do what he's going to do. I don't need him. I don't need him to look like Steve jobs because he's not Steve jobs. He's Michael Fassbender playing Steve jobs. I'm interested to see, you know, uh, how the movie portrays Jobs because uh, the Social Network was an interesting movie, not exactly uh, historically accurate for Mark Zuckerberg, including an entire uh, uh, subtext of the movie where he was basically created Facebook to try to get with a girl, whereas in real life he's been dating the same girl for like 15 years. So. Yeah, but that was a good nerd story, right? Not, well, let's let's just back up for a second here, right? It's not historically accurate as far as Mark Zuckerberg says. But right. It's not, but it's I, not as though the story was just made up from nothing, right? I am correct. Having previously been the kind of nerd in college that Mark Zuckerberg was, I am 100% sure that I would have done the same thing had I had that thought. I have no problem with uh, the artistic license taken. It's a little weird when you apply it to a real life person and don't like, you know, change the names to protect the innocent or something or whatever. Uh, it's just weird when you take an actual person and then create a fictionalized story about them based in some truth, because there's a lot of people out there now that have seen the social network and have this idea of Mark Zuckerberg based on that movie that maybe is not entirely fair. Having said that, I mean, Aaron Sorkin is a great screenwriter. Um, he writes great dialogue. Uh, I absolutely despised and hate watched the newsroom on HBO. Uh, <laughs> that, that show is such an insufferable, uh, it just, uh, uh, condescending revisionist history. Uh, that was just a, it was just an entire experience. Three seasons of, uh, Aaron, of Aaron Sorkin looking down his nose at you was, was, the, was the newsroom. So needless to say, I'm skeptical going to this movie because as someone who really, really liked the social network and really, really hated the newsroom, I know both sides of Aaron Sorkin. Well, there's also the side of Aaron Sorkin that wrote the West Wing. And the right. first four seasons of the West Wing are arguably the best four seasons of television that have ever been made. The guy is talented. He writes great dialogue. He writes great characters. Uh, Fassbender is a great actor. Danny Boyle is a great director. There's a lot of talent tied to this movie. Uh, I'm not interested in watching two and a half hours of a movie telling me what a great guy Steve Jobs was. I'm more interested in heroes' flaws and what makes them human yeah. and kind of, you know, Steve's 
shortcomings of which there were many, many. Uh, and I'm not interested in a two and a half hour movie that's that's going to be like a feel good. Oh, wasn't this guy the greatest person that ever existed? You know, modern Thomas Edison kind of thing. I'd like to kind of get into some of the darker side. I mean, certainly Steve had his, his great qualities, too, but he had a lot of problems and a lot of demons. And uh, I would assume knowing uh, what Aaron Sorkin does and the way he does the scripts. I know that the script leaked online and people have read it. I don't want to read. it. I don't want to be spoiled. Um, it, it, uh, I would imagine it would touch on those subjects. It's supposed to be based on the, uh, Walter Isaacson book, but clearly has very little to do with it. And they just bought the rights to the book just to have a prestige thing, which is fine by me because that book is just a chore to get through. It's just 600 pages of just boring. Um, so I, I, I'm hoping that it's going to be good, but I'm, I'm going in with kind of a neutral attitude about it. Right. So you're going in neutral. Shane, is this going to be the first decent Steve Jobs movie? I mean, oh, are, come we, on. You didn't are like we assuming the... the Pirates of Silicon Valley was not oh, a decent okay. movie? Yes, yes. Okay, that's the first. Is this what about first? Ashton Kutcher? Come on. I actually haven't seen the Ashton Kutcher one. I haven't either. It looked terrible. It does it, look not only perfect. did it look terrible, I mean, okay, Ashton nailed the look, but everyone else in that movie looked pretty terrible. And I watched the the picking apart by the people that are still alive, you know, Wozniak and friends talking about how none of that actually happened. Yeah, I mean, I honestly... I'm going into this movie not caring about this movie whatsoever. Really. <laughs> I'll, I'll be honest. If 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 I was not involved with Apple Insider, it's highly unlikely I would see this movie. Sounds like a box office success in the making. <laughs> I, I would see this movie regardless because it's Aaron Sorkin, because it's Danny Boyle, because it's Michael Fassbender. I'm a movie fan. I you know like the talent involved. So I'm curious to see how it turns out. If it's a train wreck or if it's amazing. I think a lot of the, the internet commenters were really, really excited about uh, Batman potentially playing Steve jobs because Christian Bale was up for the role and fan casting gets way out of hand. And people have this idea in their head of who they want to play. These Plus parts. Christian Bale is awesome at just going insane at random times. <laughs> that, that is yeah. true. That, that would have been, uh, he would have cast and crew. <laughs> Right. So uh, I think that's a big part of why you're going to see some backlash against Michael Fassbender. Who gives a crap if he looks yeah. like Steve Jobs? Does it really matter? Does it? Do you care? Because I, I don't should, care. I should clarify. When I said I wouldn't, I wouldn't see this movie, what I meant was I wouldn't see this movie in theaters. I would wait until it came out on HBO. You would pirate it? No, I wouldn't pirate it. <laughs> that's truth, Truthfully, pirating today is just way too much effort. It's Are you way kidding? too much effort. It's so really? much. Yes. In terms of my time value... It's so you much cheaper to just read the internet thing. Are you kidding me? One of, one of my favorite things is, uh, Shane, you can probably elaborate on this more than me, but in, in Hong Kong and elsewhere in China and even here in the U.S. in some areas where they sell pirated movies on the street and they make their own <clears throat> uh, custom movie posters and covers yeah. to make the movie look more exciting than it is. So they'll like mash up like they'll throw like Arnold Schwarzenegger like into a Star Wars movie or something and they put like every like Tom Cruise is randomly on the cover and stuff even though they're not in the movie. Yeah, you see that a lot more in mainland China. In Hong Kong, they're much more um, they're much more highbrow about it. They usually get generally the correct uh, thing <laughs> put on the cover. I want to get the quality, bootleg. Quality. I want to get the bootleg shot in the back row with a handheld camera, uh, a copy of oh. the Steve Jobs movie with Michael Fassbender, and they Photoshop like uh, uh, they Photoshop like Professor Xavier onto there. And uh, 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 Arnold Schwarzenegger's on there from Predator. That's the copy of the movie I want to see. But you know, they changed they changed the 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 script for China, right? You've heard this, haven't you? No. 
there are whole scenes that get filmed for screening in China that no oh, one else yeah, in the world yeah. sees. Oh yeah, yeah, for other movies. Yeah, yeah. yeah. One of the first ones to do that was Iron Man three. They did this like uh, scene where like. Uh, the the most famous actor in China, I don't even know who the heck he is, but uh, Robert Downey Jr. like gets on the phone and calls up and he goes, we need your help in China. And the guy goes, okay, and then hangs up the phone and they just put that in the Chinese release and people went nuts and the movie made like a ton of money over there. It's and there's there's another part at the end where there's a the, the doctor taking the shrapnel out of his, spoiler alert, the doctor taking the <laughs> shrapnel out of him as Chinese. Um, but yeah, I saw those and I didn't actually realize those were China only scenes until I saw the movie again later without them. Yeah. And then like uh, the new Transformers uh, did uh, uh, like a big action piece in, in China. Uh, they, they do a lot of that in now to like cater the Chinese. Was it in Hong Kong? Yeah. I went, uh, I, I was watching that part going, how did the dinosaur get from way up in the new territories to Causeway <laughs> Bay to Saingpun back to Causeway Bay in five seconds? It's a robot, man. (laughs) Wow. Well, all right. I think we're going to wrap up. And if dinosaurs come to Causeway Bay and Apple introduces a TV, you're going to hear about it on Apple Insider. Thanks for listening. Share with your friends. I'm I'm so glad you were here, Neil. Where can people find you on the internet? Uh, I'm on Twitter at thisisneil, and you can read my stuff on Apple Insider. And Shane, where people can find you? Well, if I've done my job, you can't find me on the internet. But otherwise, I'm on Apple Insider. Thanks for listening. Share with your friends. And please consider leaving a review on iTunes.